Father, I just ask for your strength and your healing and your blessing on Larry. His body uh, has been fighting this shaking and uh, his, he's not been stable on his feet. And now he's fallen this morning. And uh, Lord, I just pray for his healing. I pray for strength for him. I pray your hand of blessing upon him. Lord, this whole congregation now is interceding on behalf of our brother. Be his strength and be his help. Bless this family in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, thank you. We are continuing our series in John, slowly inching our way through, just crawling. But that's okay, isn't it? If it's not okay, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> well, welcome. We are glad you are here, glad you are able to get here. And uh, it's been an a odd season with weather and events happening. It was a busy week at the church. We had all kinds of things going on. Praise, praise the Lord for that. So, uh, boy, I just saw a lot of you here for all kinds of stuff. And uh, you don't get extra credit for it, but, you know, it, it is good for you. So... Um, Let's jump right into our text. John chapter 5, verse 31 and following. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. So Jesus, he did not accept... Uh, what human beings said about himself to obtain his value or his meaning. He didn't depend on uh, what other people said to establish who he was in his own mind. He heard a voice, a voice of the Father, a voice telling him who he was and what he was about. You know, there are a lot of voices that will try to tell you about your value. There are plenty of people in this world who will measure you by your age or your weight or your beauty or your wealth or your intelligence or your credentials, whatever your credentials are. And as hard as it will be for us, part of growth and Christ-likeness means we need to learn to wean ourselves from these voices, from these words that other people say about us. If you ever want to do a very interesting study in the Bible, go to the scripture with the question, who does God say I am? And then try to answer that. Who does God say that I am? I've been around long enough that I've seen the way some of you behave when you get worked up about things. And we need to listen to the voice that says, never will I leave you. Never 
will I forsake you. Because if you truly listen to God's testimony about who he says you are, when he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future, when you let that be the voice that speaks to you, when you hear that voice, I know all the things that people fuss about, all the things people fight about. You know, we still are in this world. We still have to deal with those situations. But when you listen to the voice that says, I know the plans I have for you, all the fussing and fighting that's going on, you seem removed from it somehow. You are in that situation. But the emotional content, the spiritual content of that is not the same weight as it would usually be. Because your heart is removed somewhere else, somewhere safe, somewhere listening to another voice that says, I see, I know, you are my beloved. Jesus hears what God the Father says about him. And this is the voice that Jesus chooses to believe. If you have God's testimony about yourself and what you are doing, really, you don't need anything else. Your actions will be marked by peace and joy. The things that people get flustered about, you will be a calm presence in the room. You'll be able to handle criticism when people do you wrong when they say hurtful things about you, slander even. Even validation, praise, flattery, these things will not affect you in the same way because you're not looking to people and their validation in the ways that you used to when you begin to listen to the voice of God and what he says about you and what he says your value is. As you grow in Christ-likeness and in, in becoming like Jesus, will be weaned from what people say, both in uh, circumstances of criticism or praise. And this freedom that it gives us, it allows us to be a totally different kind of person in all the situations of our life. Job, school, interactions in the supermarket, even things like road rage and driving or different affronts that people make. People's flattery doesn't necessarily sway you the same way. Uh, you don't have to be a people pleaser. That's one that I had to learn. You have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony because he's already listened to the voice of God and who God says he is. But I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Jesus wants to help these people. He knows who he is, but he's trying to help us and his audience 
understand something about who he is as well. They can't hear the voice of the Father that is affirming Jesus. And so they need other witnesses. And Jesus begins with John the Baptist. Witness number one. John came into the world to bear witness to the true light. 1-7. Not only had he borne witness to the religious leaders from Jerusalem, 1-19 and 20, but he had also publicly identified Jesus as the Lamb of God and the Spirit-anointed Son of God. So that is witness number one. Then Jesus goes on to say, here's a second one. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. So witness number two, the work of Jesus, the mission of Jesus. Look at his life. What is the fruit of his interactions with people? What was he doing? Look at the miracles. Look at the content of his words. Look at who it is that he gives credit to. Look at who it is he glorifies. There's a lesson to be taught to us, I think, about spiritual discernment. Don't just listen to people's words. Look for fruit in their lives. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Look at the circumstances and see if they affirm the words. Become wise in discerning the bigger story that is behind people's words. I know a lot of people who are men and women of very few words. But what they say carries weight because it's backed by the quality of their lives. There are also people who are smooth talkers. They can tell a good story. They can teach a good Bible class. They can preach a good sermon. But if it's not real, you can sense, you can feel that there's something off a little bit. You can feel that. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Once again, Jesus is the doorkeeper to a right relationship with God. Jesus is the switchboard operator. You know, like in the old days when telephones were just first being invented, those calls had to be, it wasn't done all automatically. You would call an operator and they would plug wires to different places to get that. That's what Jesus does for us. He gets us in connection with God the Father. I don't know if any of you remember those days. They're before my time. At least I know how to dial like numbers on a rotary phone. I can do that much at least. But not the ones that are like the little thing there and the... That's beyond me. I have known nothing about that. But Jesus, he is the gatekeeper who gets us into a right relationship with God. Then it goes on to say these words. These are powerful, haunting words. 
You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You refuse to come to me to have life. It's a tragedy in this text, and it's still a tragedy today. When people use the Bible in such a way that they miss the whole point of the Bible. It's all about a relationship. It's all about a relationship. So think of it this way. God, he gives us the scriptures as a gift. And he says, this book will show you how to live. It'll show you how much I love you. It'll show you how to find me. And so he gives us this book, and it's like there's a bunch of kindergartners at the feet of their parents. And so one kid takes the book, and he starts coloring, and another one starts ripping pages out of it. Another one starts making lists about the book, because I'm, not, I'm a rule keeper. I'm not going to break the rules in this book. Another one uh, starts yelling at other kids, saying, you're not doing it right. And then another one starts, takes the book and starts hitting other kids over the head with it. You know the way kids are. You know the way people are and behave. And as this scene plays out, there's a loving father just wanting the attention of his children, the love of his children. It's all about relationship. The Sermon on the Mount affirms this. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly. These are haunting words to me. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's all about relationship. Who do you know as your king? What is there in your life that is keeping you from turning around and accepting the embrace of a loving God who's waiting there for you with arms wide open? It's all about relationship. And Jesus came to this world because he wanted to make a way for us for our entire life to become one big yes to God. Yes, Father. Yes, Father. Yes, my Lord. Jesus makes a way for us to have that. Verse 41, it says, I do not accept praise from men, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. 
when you don't have the love of God in your heart, when you don't have the love of God in there. You have to rely on things that are as fickle and fleeting and unstable as the praise of other people. The praise that comes and goes with the wind. And I've got to say, the praise that comes from people, it's never going to be enough to fill the hole in your heart. It won't. Without the love of God, you are never going to be complete. You will never be completely at peace. You will never be completely at rest. We try not to think about the brokenness of our life and the holes in our heart. And that's why we're constantly on the move, I think, sometimes. It's why we surround ourselves with all kinds of junk that we really don't need, with all kinds of distraction. It's why we fear silence and have a hard time just being quiet. It's why we fear empty spaces. See, the truth is, each one of us in this room was created with infinite desires. You have all kinds of longing in your heart, inside of you. You were created with infinite desires. And we just keep adding to them. We keep imagining them. We just have all of these needs. So doesn't it make sense to entrust your soul to the only being in the universe that has infinite power and infinite love? God alone can give you all of the desires of your heart. And He will help you refine those desires to make them into something really, truly beautiful. Beautiful in a way that blesses the people around you, that builds His church, that glorifies Himself. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from only God? There are all kinds of people, and this, and this is in, in Jesus' time, this is in our time. There are all kinds of people who come along in their own name saying, I've got what you need. I'm going to fix this problem for you. I've got, I've got the goods right here. I've got the answers. Here, to just do this. There are all kinds of people who come in their own name saying this. We have a whole advertising industry built on convincing you of all the things that you need, but that you know you, know you really don't need. We know on some level we're being lied to, but we accept it. Because there's a world full of people who come in their own name promising you money or sex or power or health or security. And whoever they are, they're the ones on some level that are exploiting you and getting rich off of you. And you put up with it. You put up with it. But then Jesus comes and says, whoever wants to save his life must lose it. And there's something in you that says, how dare you, sir? This is my life. Once again, what kind of words 
are you going to try to choose to feed yourself on? What kind of foundation are you going to choose to build your life on? And so the second part of that verse, effort to obtain the praise that comes only from God. What are you doing to make an effort to get the praise that only God gives? Think about it a sec. What are you doing to get the praise and love and validation of God? We work hard to get an education. We work hard to save money. It takes time, money, and effort to get ourselves through school, to work at our our careers. We like to be competent in our careers. We get continuing education. We work hard in our savings, our uh, retirement plans, our uh, 401ks, our um, Roth IRAs, our investment portfolio. We work hard at those things. We work hard at raising our children, about protecting them, about giving them all kinds of wonderful experiences. We work hard at those things. We make a real concerted effort at those things. But a lot of times when it comes to spiritual things, we don't put in that same level of effort. We don't approach it the same way. It's like this own separate little category that we've set aside. When you seek God with all of your heart, you will find Him. And when you listen to His praise, you truly become unshakable. But when we treat our spiritual life as something that we just are going to fall into, it's just we're sitting around waiting for a divine whammy to hit us, and we're not intentional about it. It's like, okay, I've decided my retirement strategy is going to be racking up credit card debt to buy lottery scratch tickets, and that'll fix everything. crazy way of thinking about a retirement investment and yet that's about the level of effort a lot of people give to cultivating a living relationship with your God when you learn to listen to his voice you will become unshakable but sometimes tragically there's a lot of us who are so hungry for attaboys from other people that we miss out on the affirmation and the validation that God desires to give us. Don't think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Back in 137, Jesus tells the Jews, you do not hear God's voice and have not seen his form. 
Exodus 33 says, Moses, he heard God's voice. Jesus speaks the words of God, but they do not hear. So in reality, these Jews are not true followers of Moses. Moses turns out, in the end, to be their very accuser. So here's witness number three. First, John the Baptist, then the work of Jesus. Witness number three about Jesus Christ. It's the words of the Old Testament itself. Jesus' testimony is supported by prophecy in the law and in the prophets. You know, there's a great irony here uh, because in the hidden music of John's gospel, Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the author of Torah. He's the writer of the Pentateuch. He's the writer of the prophets. But the Jews are so close-minded in their interpretation in this case that they cannot see this and they cannot accept him. Jesus is a threat to their understanding of who God is and what God is like. So I guess the lesson for us is let's learn from the stubbornness of the Jews. Let yourself be led, let yourself be taught through his word and through his spirit. Jesus will teach you what God is like. Jesus will teach you what God is really like, what his voice sounds like. And then let Jesus teach you about who you really are and what your life purpose is. Don't choose the Bible as a rule book. Choose the relationship. Choose Christ alive in you. The Holy Spirit teaching your spirit. Choose that. Now let's transition into chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the mirac miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. So now the scene changes. We know from Passover references that it's, you know, almost Passover. It's springtime in Galilee, a very beautiful time of year, wildflowers growing, the grass is green, soft places to sit, a gentle, warm sun, a nice breeze coming off the sea. It's also springtime in Jesus's ministry. People are flocking to him by droves. He's an amazing teacher who performs all kinds of miracles. People are murmuring about him. There's excitement growing. He's not like anything we've ever heard or seen. And the buzz, the excitement is just in the air. People are starting to travel great distances just to hear him and see him and know something about him. Stories are circulating. It is the springtime of Jesus' ministry.
It's also springtime for his disciples, I think. As Jesus is rising in popularity, we know that John the Baptist's ministry was declining even where Jesus' ministry is skyrocketing. We saw some of the humility of John. But these disciples of Jesus now, they're probably beginning to feel their own importance. Weren't they the ones that Jesus himself chose? They were picked out by this extraordinary man. And weren't they going to be the ones who would share power in Jesus' new government? That's what the kingdom of God is. It's government. It's where the dominion and reign of God is. And they must have been excited and enthusiastic about this, even though they had no idea what it meant yet. People were flocking to Jesus, and many of them were being healed. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus has a sense of humor. Don't miss that. Jesus had been feeding these people with his words and his teaching. Also, don't miss that Jesus is concerned about the physical welfare of these people. And he's going to take care of their physical needs. And it's going to feed them spiritually as well in the way that he does it. It kind of seems like to me a kind of unfair test to Philip. No one in living memory had seen this kind of multiplication or knew, even knew that that was possible. But it's not without precedent. Because he would have grown up hearing the stories about the Exodus. That God gave manna, bread from heaven, and quail to eat. There's also other stories about the power of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha especially. Elijah, through the power of God, worked with a widow who in a time when there is no rain... Her little bit of flour and oil didn't run out. It just kept producing a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. It's a miracle of multiplication. And then there's this interesting story from 2 Kings chapter 4. A man came from Baal, Shalish, bringing the man of God, Elisha, 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men? His servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he sat it before them, and they ate and had some left or over according to the word of the Lord. So it's not without precedence. But Philip doesn't draw these things to mind. He says, eight months' wages would not be enough bread for each one to have a bite. But another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Well, this kid, this here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will it go among so many? That same kind of question that that other servant had. How can I set this before a hundred men? And that was 20 barley loaves. Now we only have five. 
in the hidden music of John's gospel, the scene is set to once again reveal the divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus starts with less than the prophet Elisha, but then feeds more than Elisha. And in the end, ends up with more leftovers. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Twelve basketfuls. Twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve apostles. As many as were there ate their fill. And there was even completeness in the number of basketfuls left over. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. The people realize that an amazing miracle has taken place. Jesus, he is greater than Moses. He is greater than Elijah. He is greater than Elisha. Only God himself could supply this kind of abundance. So let me say a word uh, about abundance and scarcity to wrap up this morning. We make a lot of decisions and treat a lot of people really poorly because we have a scarcity mentality. There's not enough to go around. I need to take care of me and mine. We know we have needs. We know we need food. We know we need to be nourished. But we fear that there's not enough to go around. We are caught up in a world of competition where we tend to see other people as rivals, not as people with whom we can cooperate and grow together. You know, I talk, I don't try to talk politics up here. I talk about issues as I see and I believe. Uh, people can probably, you know, peg me as being fairly conservative about a lot of things. Okay, I don't really care about the labels or whatnot. But I am going to say, because I'm an equal opportunity offender from this pulpit, a lot of the posts I see on Facebook about the GOP and the Republican perspective, it seems to come from a scarcity mentality. And it's really an us versus them kind of thinking that keeps us in the end from loving other people well. You might not like to hear that, but I think I need to say it. The Bible is very clear 
about ways that we are supposed to treat the alien and the stranger. And yet I don't see things like the compassion of Christ being expressed in the kinds of things that we are posting. And it's the kind of thinking that's based on a combination of pride and fear that says things like, not in my backyard, not on my watch. Now, I'm not telling you don't be political. And I'm not telling you don't make wise decisions in who you give your vote to. But I'm telling you to step back in prayer from time to time and ask for God's help to remind you who the true enemy is. You do have an enemy of your soul. It's not other people in this room. It's not the weirdos living in Eugene. You do have an enemy of your soul. And I also need to say, if you are a member of this congregation, you have an allegiance. You have an allegiance that comes before your political affiliation. You have an allegiance that comes before and above your country. An allegiance that is to take precedent even over your own family. It's the claim of God on your life. But the truth is, without God, We're stuck in a closed system where all there is is a scarcity mentality. There's never going to be enough that go around. And without his help, we are never going to be able to move out of our own self-centeredness to a place of self-giving unless we regularly experience the extravagant abundance and generosity of God. At Cana, In Galilee, we've read in John how Jesus transformed an excessive amount of water into choice wine. Now he multiplies bread and fish to make an excessive quantity of food. And there's enough for everybody. That's the power of multiplication. That is the power of God. And when you realize through love, faith, and the power of the Holy Spirit that God is going to take care of you, you will move from a scarcity mentality to one that relies on the abundance and the resources of the kingdom of God made available to us, even now in this life. See, when I know that God is going to take care of me and mine instead of fearing other people, I am able to be generous to them. I can give you something because I know that God is going to take care of me and he's going to take care of mine. So the deeper significance of this miracle of multiplication is that the abundance that God creates, it makes the possibility for us human beings to get along and be in community with each other. creates the possibility that we can really 
love each other and share openly with each other because we know that God has been so generous with us. Ways that God's generosity helps us grow. This is part of our sanctification. When we experience the abundance of God, we move from ignorance to wisdom. We move from selfishness to self-giving. We move from fear to trust. We move from guilt or shame to inner liberation. We move from a lack of self-esteem to self-acceptance. Let me also just say, we move from pride to humility, from humility to love. The generosity of God does that for us. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They wanted to use Jesus for their own selfish needs. They wanted a bread king, someone who was going to take care of all their problems, and he will, but not in the way that they thought. Because in the end, he doesn't just want to be their entertainer or their bread king. He wants to be the Lord of their life. So now John's gospel moves us toward understanding the kind of king that God called Jesus to be. And it wasn't anything that even Jesus' own disciples expected. We begin to move now out of the summer, or out of the springtime and the good time of Jesus' ministry. And we begin to move into the heat of the summer. The heat of persecution. The heat of misunderstanding. The heat of abandonment. And Jesus is able to take the heat because of his unwavering focus on who God is. He listens to a testimony, a voice that affirms who he is, that allows him to go through the very worst that humanity could throw at him. So for our invitation, let me just say, if you need prayers of support of this congregation to help you learn to listen to that voice, to experience the abundance of God, maybe you're not feeling that, I don't know, or to believe in the testimony about what God says about you, what he says about you as his beloved. You have an opportunity to come and share those things with us while we stand and sing together. Until his rock.